On behalf of Hospice of the Piedmont, welcome back to the E-Series, an educational podcast aimed at engaging our community, exploring relevant topics, and educating about ways to connect with our organization. My name is Ryan Biagini, and I am your host. Today we conclude our episode, Conversations in Care, Setting the Goal, with CEO Trent Cockrum and Senior Medical Director, Dr. Genevieve Robleski. Let's jump back into that conversation now. So it leads me sort of to a next thought, uh, Dr. Jen, and this may be a biased question, okay? (laughs) So I wanna acknowledge that up front. But in your time as a physician, I suspect you've seen many thousands of patients. Um, I think it's also worth noting that uh, one thing we we didn't talk about, you're actually the daughter of two physicians. I am. Yeah, your your dad was a. My OB- grandfather was a physician as well. Your grandfather was a physician. You come from a long line of physicians. Yes. Um, and so, without question, you've probably heard stories in your lifetime, or at least had experience with patients who had hospice and patients who didn't have hospice. And what did the care look like on either side of that? So when you ask me that, as a geriatrician, I'm going to focus on an example of two paths that can be taken with the advanced dementia patient. Because I've seen patients on both sides of both paths. Mm -hmm. Just to give a little bit of information, advanced dementia patients eventually have difficulty with swallowing And when they start to have difficulty with swallowing, they often get pneumonia. Mm -hmm. And as the disease progresses, the the episodes of pneumonia start to increase in frequency. Mm -hmm. When patients with dementia go into a hospital for the treatment of pneumonia, they oftentimes return home not quite as well as they had been before they left. What I mean is, They've reached a level of cognition and they are now experiencing pneumonia and their their condition drops way down and with treatment comes back up, but not quite to the level they were before they got that pneumonia. And families notice this. Mom's never quite the same when she comes from the hospital. It's all better. Right. And as these, these things increase in frequency, some patients' families never have the opportunity to take a step back with the help and guidance of, let's say, the physician to say, mom has a condition that will actually end in death, likely from pneumonia. What would mom want you to do the next time she has pneumonia? If mom were here sitting with us at the table, what would she ask for you to do? Because the two paths are we continue to go into the hospital, which is an extremely disorienting, scary, terrifying place for demented demented patients. And certainly if they end up in the intensive care unit, extremely disorienting and scary, painful with all the treatments. And we end up, if we at the end of that journey, possibly at the bedside with the physician saying, you know, we've done all we can. 
And now we're going to have to focus on comfort. We need to stop the aggressive treatment. The other option is we've had that conversation before those last, that last admission or so. And families say, you know what? Mom wouldn't want all this. Mom would want to be in her bed at home, surrounded by loved ones, and have a peaceful, natural death. And you know, he doesn't want to suffer. We don't want to see mom short of breath, but we don't want to subject mom to what we had before. And you know what's interesting, Trent? I've seen both of those scenarios. Patients' families who have gone through the ordeal of that last hospitalization, often patients come to hospice home for the end of their lives, those dementia patients. And you can see that the family has also been through a traumatic experience. Mm -hmm. And they've actually studied this trend. They found that patients, families, loved ones who have undergone the ICU route have a much greater incidence of depression after the, their loved one dies than those families whose loved ones have been in a hospice program and had a different end of life experience. Yeah, you know, having had experience with uh, patients with advanced dementia in my career, um, I, you know, an ICU or, or a place that doesn't look familiar, um, any place that doesn't look familiar is terribly unsettling because they really function best to the extent they have some functionality. Um, they function best and thrive best in a surrounding that is really familiar and comfortable to them, in spite of the fact that those familiar surroundings, the familiarity of those might ebb and flow over time. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. I think that for families, the acknowledgement that they've done what mom or dad would have wanted can sort of mitigate the, 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 any ambivalence, ambivalence they may have about, well, I want to do everything that I can for mom. Sure. And allow mom to actually be a person that they're advocating for. Mm -hmm. In a different way, Trent, in a different way than pulling the reflexive trigger of we're going to call 911. It's a completely different way to advocate for a loved one. Right. I mean, what you're describing in the, in the non-hospice setting um, is sort of this, I think, this transactional form of sort of expected or maybe even reflexive care. What do I mean? It's sort of you know, the patient presents perhaps and, and, and the, the system, everybody who's around the patient is focused on fixing the things that are fixable. But, you know, in hospice, we're focused on that too, but we don't lose sight of the things that truly aren't fixable. And we create a balance. Is that fair? Absolutely. And, you know, Trent, in my early, early career, early training, when I was a trainee doctor in internal medicine. Um, 10 years or so ago. I think so. <laughs> um, you know, I'll never forget uh, having a patient come into the hospital and assigned to me and, and I took stock of the situation and I looked at all of his laboratory data and his x-ray 
and I did some tests, additional tests on him and gave him some treatments. And um, what I didn't focus on was the fact that he was so close to the end of life, but I had not been mentored or educated to really take a step back and look at the big picture. And so I did what I was trained to do and I fixed his laboratory data and he, he died several hours later, but I'll never forget that case because I think to myself, I've come such a long way from being reflexive in looking at a physical abnormality or lab test in isolation. Mm. Physicians really need to look at the whole picture, where that patient is in their disease process, what are their hopes, wants, what are their priorities, and what should we do as opposed to what can we do? Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, it totally makes sense. You know, I'm, I'm also reminded of, of, of a reality that physicians are human. Right. Yes. And, and we, we all, you know, yes. And we, we learn along the way. Yeah. And, and, and these conversations, you know, if they're not learned during the educational process of becoming a physician, they're at least learned or informed by perhaps experience too. I think so. Though I think, I, I, I suspect that, um, there is more information being shared with young physicians now about hospice and palliative care than when I was mm -hmm. in training. But at its root, it sounds as though it, it's incumbent upon the patient, the family, to actually begin, and maybe even the physician too, but to begin an honest conversation of, you know, this is how I'm feeling. This is what I'm thinking. This is where I think we're headed. Can we talk about this? Right. Uh, and, you know, I think patients get very attached to their doctors and doctors to their patients in some respects. The longer you know a patient, the harder it is to prognosticate. I don't know if you know that, Trent. Hmm. They've done studies on this. The longer you know the patient, the harder it is. Interesting. It is. And is that because physicians are themselves, you know, incredibly optimistic? They're optimistic. And um, so it's, 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 it's also a feeling of not wanting a patient to feel abandoned. Yeah, right. But the thing with hospice is the primary care physician does not have to give up their relationship with their, their patient because they become a hospice patient. Um, and what they actually gain is an additional um, support structure to help a patient through difficult times in a, in a very efficient way. It's hard for the busy practitioner in the office and who doesn't have access to a, a social worker or a chaplain at a relatively moment's notice like hospice does. Right. Now, you know, as a physician, there are you have many tools in your toolbox. Mm. I expect um, a lot of different types of medications, and you know, along with hospice, oftentimes comes this 
real misconception about the use of different types of medications. Um, might you talk a little bit about that without going to not too much medical ease, but just to, just to have a broad overview of that. So I think one of the medications that we use that creates the most angst in patients are the opioids. And when I say opioids, I mean drugs like morphine. In today's world, with the opioid crisis as it's been, concerns about addiction and premature death are on a lot of people's minds. The other thing that a lot of people think is that we use morphine only in patients who are imminently dying. It's not time for the morphine yet, sometimes families will say. Hmm. And let me just say this about our medical practice. As a physician, first of all, I am very interested in supporting you to, to live as long and as comfortably as you possibly can. The use of opioids like morphine can sometimes be, oftentimes, be extremely helpful in the appropriate dose to relieve pain and interestingly, trend shortness of breath. Patients with profound shortness of breath, given a small dose of morphine, oftentimes are able to enjoy a meal without struggling to breathe, enjoy a shower without extreme distress. This is something that many people don't know. And so what I like to say to patients, especially when they are very anxious, I like to share with them that A, we're focused on improving quality of life, and B, I've had patients on these drugs for months and months. And I can see the re oftentimes a complete relaxation because, oh, this is a tool that will increase my quality, but it's, she's not giving me something that will hasten. It's something to help me live better. Something to help me live better. And you have no idea, Trent, how delighted patients are when they realize what a useful tool morphine can be. Mm -hmm. It just opens the door to increased um, functionality sometimes. You know, one of the things you just said um, sort of, conjured a thought in my mind is you said, you know, as a physician, your goal is to help someone live as long as they can. But many people believe that choosing hospice care is sort of tantamount to, you know, uh, rushing the end of life. And that's really not the case at all. Totally not the case. And once again, um, I like to describe it as a robust benefit because of all the additional support in the setting of a chronic illness that we will manage the best that we can. Mm -hmm. So we'll continue those medicines that you need for your lung disease. And we will add maybe a little morphine. We will add some psychological support because frankly, it's a really hard thing to live with chronic illness emotionally. Right. Yeah. And spiritually. One of the things uh, that we haven't talked about that I'd like to see if we couldn't talk just very briefly about 
oftentimes I describe uh, the difference between palliative care and hospice as hospice takes everything that we know about palliative medicine, which is a medical specialty, and, and bundles it together with a lot of really important services, like services of a visiting nurse, a physician, a social worker, a chaplain, a volunteer, a nursing assistant, drugs, durable medical equipment. Is that a, is that a fair statement? I mean, you know, palliative medicine is a medical specialty, but hospice is the benefit, right? Hospice is a program. Mm-hmm. that um, affords a patient, as you said, so many services and, and, and things that they need that one cannot get in any other program under, under Medicare or any other insurance. Um, so hospice is palliative care, but it's an enhanced program that provides palliative care and all of the tools that one needs to live the most comfortable life in the setting of a chronic illness, in the setting of a serious life-limiting illness. It's Um, plus more, right? Plus more. It's everything you had before, but now actually we're providing more support, medications, equipment. It's it's a wonderful program. Mm. So a couple more things. what are what's the one or two things that have made your work as a hospice physician so very different than your work prior to working in hospice? I may I say I love my work. I mean, this has been the most wonderful career I could have imagined. The opportunity to meet people where they are, to sit with them in their home, to listen to their story, to acknowledge how difficult it's been, and to be there in very, very, very special times. I have been with patients when they died surrounded by family, and it is just a profound experience. I have been with patients who were terrified and in a lot of pain, and I've relieved that pain and just saw a completely different person emerge. It has been a wonderful thing, and I've had the ability to work with so many wonderful professionals, nurses, nursing assistants, social workers, the chaplains, my colleagues in the medical profession. I have to tell you, Trent, it's been... It's, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. The gratification has been immense. Yeah, it, 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 what you describe is, is sort of the, what I think we all conceptualize as a true patient-centered delivery of care, right? Yes. Um, so I want to be mindful of folks who are watching this in, in our time today, but um, Dr. Jen, what are one or two things that you would want somebody listening to know about hospice care and our organization? I think we've described hospice care well in in terms of the additional support, but in terms of this organization, I have to say I've 
had a rather long career in hospice. I feel very privileged to have been working at Hospice of the Piedmont for the past seven years. The quality of care is exceptionally good. And I must say the culture of caring and collaboration in, at Hospice of the Piedmont is unparalleled. So hospice in and of itself can be a scary word, but I hope that our conversation has helped to dispel some myths about it. I hope that our conversation has, has given people who may be thinking that a loved one might benefit some information about the, the rich benefits. And I also hope that people come away from this knowing that Hospice of the Piedmont is really an organization committed to excellence, patient-centered care, and uh, quality. I'm, I'm delighted to be a member of the team. Well, it, it certainly is a privilege of mine to work alongside you, Dr. Jen. I, um, and on behalf of an incredibly grateful organization. I cannot thank you enough for spending the last 45 or so minutes with me and having this really insightful conversation. Thank you for joining us for part two of our discussion, Conversations in Care, Setting the Goal. Join us next time for Conversations in Care, Empowering Engagement, as CEO of Hospice of the Piedmont, Trent Cockrum, sits down with a friend of our organization, Susan Morris, to hear her story of personal engagement and encouragement. Together, they will discuss the empowering nature of hospice and how Susan's story has spurred her to embrace the organization's mission. We hope you'll join us. Until then, I'm Ryan Biagini, and this has been The E-Series.